Thank you all for tuning in to Politics, Religion, and Whiskey, the Josh Terry Podcast, brought to you by Raising Grace Studios. Want to give a big shout out to all of our sponsors, Par Hopper, Williams Tire, Nobles Networking, Grid Iron Coffee, Straight Haggard Thread Company. Uh, also, our management company, Red Circle. Thank you for all that you do and all the corporate sponsors you have brought on for the show. Uh, everybody knows how passionate I am about certain things. Well, one of them is protecting our children. And over the past couple of years with all the documentaries that has came out and all the things that have came up, um, just in the media about children being sex trafficked and other things. I talk about it on social media all the time. And luckily one of our listeners the other day got me hooked up with Mr. J Jordan from, uh, the UK who is, uh, I guess the owner of, uh, Pegasus Ops, um, and he is here with us today. And uh, well, he's not here with us today in person, but he's here with us in spirit all the way across the pond. Uh, Mr. Jordan, thank you for your time, man. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, mate. Hey, uh, you are going to be without a doubt. Um, you're you're what I inspire to be. Like you're you're what uh, I hope a lot of people inspire to be, and not just the fact that you help children the way that you do, but you are literally making a difference in this world. And that's what we try to promote on this show with whoever it is for whatever cause they have. And uh, I got to look into a lot of your stuff the other day with your website. But by the way, before we get started, will you drop some uh, your website name and where they can find you on social media? Yeah, for sure. The company is called Pegasus Ops. And the website is pegasus-ops.com. Um, all social media is on the page, but you can get us under Pegasus Ops on Facebook, Instagram, and um, TikTok. Yeah, uh, I was super surprised when I started scrolling through your stuff the other day because we get uh, we get people all the time with organizations or whatever that you don't know if they are not. I'm not going to say legit because most of them do look legit, but you don't know how much they're actually doing to help others. And when I went through your website and then I went through your TikTok and other stuff, you have made a difference. And it's obvious from some of the. You know, I, I can't remember the exact word that people use for it, but you've got like some real life um, responses from people on your website and where you have helped them. And it, it was really cool to go through and, and see it. Uh, 100%. Um, we, we tried on Facebook for a long time. We're still going on Facebook now. We never had as much of an impact as we ever had on TikTok. Um, TikTok, we're currently up above 275,000 followers, but um the majority of those followers, they're, they're very invested. We get a lot of people that want to join us. We get a lot of clients that are coming to us from TikTok now. And there's a lot of people that are on there talking about their own personal experiences, about when they was abducted, um, and all sorts of distance, different scenarios of why they was abducted as well. Um, it's, it's definitely getting out there. The reach is definitely getting out there. People are becoming a lot more aware, especially over the last six months, of what is actually going on in the world. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know how big um child trafficking and everything was until yeah. probably like a year and a half two years ago and i started watching like the save the children documentaries and all the stuff that was coming out about just a bunch of lies that we had been told as just especially over here in the united states we get we get a lot of shit that ain't true in our media and when you start looking into that stuff there's so much validation and there's so much just truth to some of the stuff and then you know with I, I talk about how bad TikTok is all the time, but in your case and in other cases that are people are actually doing good, I'm glad to see like people are acknowledging and they're finding you. And so I did read a bunch of those comments to where people do want to help. 
And that, yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah, there's loads going on with it. Um, I mean, I never thought that TikTok would ever be a reach out. I never thought it would be a platform that we would use as a business. Um, I started on TikTok because it was more chance to spend time with my boy making videos. Um, we started off with telling war stories because I've been contracting for a long time. And uh, and I told one child recovery story and then all of a sudden it just blew up and people were interested. So that's when we realized the capacity that we had on TikTok and, uh, and the capabilities that we had of reaching out to people. So it was, uh, it was pretty impressive. When it comes to when it comes to media and everything like that, I think a lot of it when it comes to um, trafficking, when it comes to children going missing in general, because it's not just trafficking, which is the reason why they go missing. There's so many different reasons. Um, I do believe it's censored massively. But um, at the same time as that, I think it's censored due to the fact that a lot of people don't want to hear about the negative side of what's happening in the reality of the world. Um, and I would compare it to the fact of it's no different that if you was to ask 100 people that have walked past a homeless person, how many people saw that homeless person, I would say that a very small percentage would have actually seen them and an even smaller percentage would have actually engaged with them. So it goes along those lines when it comes to missing children. Yeah, uh, it's funny you said that we just had the conversation wherever I was just, I think Nashville, where there was homeless people everywhere and you get to the point to where you just – and it's not a good quality, but you ignore it. Like that, you think that there's nothing yeah. you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to help this person. And if you feed into them, like give them money, then they're probably just gonna drugs, alcohol, something like that. And I, I can see how it, how some things are just ignored. A hundred percent. It even goes down to the fact, like, so so you get to the point where you got a stereotype for a homeless person, and then people live on that stereotype and they believe that stereotype for a long time. Um, one of the reasons why children go missing is obviously parental abductions. And there's a stereotype for a parent's abduction because they believe that if a child is with a parent, then that's a safe abduction. However, it's rarely the case. Parent abduction is very rarely as safe as what people think it is. Just because it's a parent doesn't mean they're actually going to look after that child. On a minimum scale, when it comes to a parental abduction, for example, um, and I hate to use the word minimum, um, but there's mental health um, uh, that's going to be part of it. And that's parental alienation, and parental alienation is technically classed as um, child abuse in itself. Now, that's on a minimum scale. Um, the higher the scale that you go, you get people threatening their children, threatening to kill their children if anyone comes near them, using them as a resource financially. And then outside of that, you've got, obviously, the, the proper psychopathic people who want to leave this impact of, of this action that they've committed on somebody else's life. And they will murder and then murder themselves as well, or commit suicide. And just to leave a mental impact upon that person. So it, it, it's all about your social status, your social awareness and, and what's been put into your mind to actually start to believe. Um, and there's so many different aspects of it all. I could go through it, but I would definitely be here all night. I can tell you. <laughs> Have you... Um... <clears throat> have you looked into as far as when it comes to dealing with some of these adults and in, in the cases you just were talking about, do you look in lot to the psychological evaluation of these people? Like, do you actually look into what makes them tick, what makes them do the things that they're doing? Um, like, have you dove into that to where you have a better understanding of somebody who, who, who abducts children or, or abuses children? Oh, hundred um, percent. Majority of the time when we're analyzing cases, we have to go through that psychological side of things. You have to be able to read people and you have to be able to understand what people are saying, why they would be saying it and what they're hiding. And almost all cases, especially when it comes to parental abduction side of things, but even on the missing child or for a runaway child or a child that's been groomed online or even a child that's gone into county lines, 
you will always see that someone is hiding something. So on the psychological aspects, we're continuously analyzing every time that we talk to somebody. We, you can figure things out very easy when you start to do that. You start to have a bigger understanding of what's going on behind the scenes that you're not being told about. And obviously what led to the actual incident taking place in itself. But that's on the parental side, the family side um, of the child that's actually gone missing. But we also do that. And that's probably what makes us good at what we do because we analyze what the actual abductor is doing. We analyze the way that they're working, the way that they're thinking. And we build a profile, psychological profiles on everything. Um, <clears throat> before we get too much deeper, can you kind of give folks, I know they're going to ask this. I should have asked this to start off with. Can you kind of yeah. give them some of your credentials? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, ex-military British Army Light Infantry. Um, I served six years and then I contracted out in the Middle East, um, Asia, and out in West Africa for 17 years as private military and private security. Um, the experience in all of that in itself, and a lot of that was close protection. Um, obviously, we've got medical qualifications and psychological qualifications as well. But outside of all of that, um, it's the experience of working in those sort of environments, the small teams, sometimes working alone. That's probably one of the primary things that makes us good at setting up operations and actually locating and, and then recovering these children. What got you into doing this for children and just, I guess, in general, of, of Pegasus? It was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally the only way I can explain it. Um, I worked, um, I started working over in Iraq um, in 2004. Um, I left there. I went over to West Africa in about the end of 2008. And then I started working in Afghanistan at the end of 2009. Um, 2012, I got injured. I lost my hearing um, to the extent where I couldn't hear anything. So I was useless on the ground. So they sent me home to recover. Now, at the same period of time, I knew a guy that was working in child recovery. I didn't know what child recovery was. Um, there were so many jokes that I had about it with him because I didn't understand the seriousness of it or anything like that. Um, but he was working in a case out in Lebanon. That case... Uh, was a child that was kidnapped by a father, but the father had Hezbollah connections out in Lebanon um, from Australia. So they took the children over to Lebanon under the guise of actually going on holiday. When they got there, he said he's not returning. Now, he went to a town, which is a Hezbollah-controlled town, uh, and he was under the protection of the, the actual muller of that town. And they had people on the streets and everything. This is something that we became aware of after I'd actually arrived in that area. Um I went over, I gave a fresh eyes on. Um, and during that fresh eyes on, I was there for about a three, four day period. I set up, I, I wanted to set up an OP in the town. I had interviews with the family. I had interviews with people that were actually involved in the case. Um, and then I analyzed everything that was going on to the point where I wanted to set up an OP to see if it was possible to take them out of the house where they were actually being held because they were being held against their will. And there was armed men on the premises. So when I went in the first time, and this is where I experienced there's a lack of professionalism in the industry. The guy that I was actually working with um, took the wrong turn. So the first time that we went in, we went in from the west side. We got chased out through an olive grove by people that was armed in there. Then I tried to get in from the east side. There was a military checkpoint, so we couldn't get through. So I decided to go straight through the town. As we went for it straight through the town, we saw this bakery. Um, this is about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. There's a lot of people hanging around. Fighting aged men is the only way that I could describe it. Um, my driver took the wrong turn and he ended up in a situation where he had to do a four or five point turn to get out of this uh, little junction. At that point, a BMW pulled up, four guys jumped out. They had AKs and shotguns that tried to pin us in. Luckily, the driver managed to get around the vehicle and then we, they basically chased us out of town. 
So that was my first impression onto the industry. And I started thinking to myself, okay, well, this is definitely a lot more serious than what I thought it would be. Um, I gave him my fresh eyes on my, my opinion on how he should move forward. Um, and then I, that was it. I thought, I thought I'd never be doing child recovery again. And, uh, and obviously in essence with that, I also met the owner of the company. I wasn't very impressed either. So I was more than happy <laughs> to be going back to Afghanistan, uh, as soon as my hearing got better. So, uh, I think, I think it must've been about two or three weeks that passed. Um, and as, as it passed, I never thought about child recovery in one way whatsoever. Never even thought about the operation, but my mate that was working the case, he ended up quitting it because he couldn't find a way to get out of there. Um, he and his, the owner of the company then approached me and asked me if I would come in and take it on. Um, and I, I, at the time, I never knew that it could be possible. But at the same time as that, I thought to myself, if I don't go now, who else is involved? In this? There's no one else involved in this case. Who else is actually going to go in and do it? And I had long conversations with my wife about it because obviously I'm waiting to go back to Afghan. I've got a steady life. Everything's, everything's secure. Everything's fine. And I'm going to be going into what can technically be classed as the clandestine world. And, uh, and it kept coming up, that question did. So it was literally one of those fuck it moments where you're literally <laughs> like, fuck it, I'm doing it. <laughs> Let's just go see what happens. Um, when I went over there, I figured it all out. Um, and it was slow going because it's a slow process. I didn't have um, the knowledge of the industry itself. Um, at the time, I didn't know until later on in the operation, I actually had another company, and I'll talk about those companies later, going against me to try to make me fail. And they were speaking to the target and they was actually supporting the target and helping him to commit to his own recce's, his reconnaissance missions to actually to, to figure out if he's being followed, uh, all this sort of stuff. Um, during that operation, I was, I was chased. Uh, I ended up ramming a car off the road, um, doing a little bit of a Jason Bourne move. And that is literally what went through my head when I did it, because it was being followed. I went to a junction, did a U-turn, came back, parked in a car park, took down, turned my lights off, and I let this car drive past me. I didn't know what I was doing. This was like complete inexperience, but it was working, and it was my operational experience previous that was keeping me on my toes, my survival experience to keep me on my toes. Um, and that led to led to that car being rammed out of the way so I could actually escape on different junctions to what they was going to. But um, all in all, we set up an operation um, and we used the uh, Cypriot Mafia to help us get a boat. I set up an operation from Cyprus and I sent a bootneck over. And you can read all about this in my book. All the details are there. Which name, we'll go into name, drop, name drop the book real fast. Yeah, the, the, the book's called Angel in the Shadows by Jay Jordan. Um, you can find it on Amazon.co.uk or SteelCityPress.co.uk. So, uh, yeah, we got that out of the way. Um, I I got a guy, a bootneck from Cyprus. He took a six point two meter rib across from Cyprus into Lebanon. I worked the land operation. He worked the sea operation. Um, and basically his job in itself was to piss off the radar operator to the point where the radar operator was looking at his radar going, oh, it's that Brit again. And then, uh, <laughs> and then he would get left alone eventually from breaking all the rules. Um, and it worked in our favour that he did it. Um, and then we managed to, uh, it's a long story short, this is you've got to understand. It led to, uh, to actually getting him out on a boat after, after a night of a lockdown, which was the longest night in my life, and got them back to Cyprus safely. Uh, it, it's that's, just, that's how it began. <laughs> I know that with some people, there's some things are more rewarding than others. You probably, when you had that fuck it moment, you probably had yeah. to weigh out what was going to be comfortable for you the rest of your life compared to what was going to be completely uncomfortable, but more rewarding as a human being. 
And, uh, dude, I, there's not a lot of people that make that choice the way that you did. I, so I, I commend you for making it. No, thanks. I appreciate that. I definitely, it's definitely been one of the hardest choices I've made. And it's definitely made my life a lot more difficult than what it would have been without a doubt. Um, and it's like, I, I've been hundred percent dedicated to child recovery since that day. And I've been doing everything I can until this day right now. Um, and I'll never stop to make sure I can work this full time and, and get as many cases done as possible throughout the years. Well, it's, I'm, it's a constant thing. I'm sure with all the time and effort you put in, when you actually get to help a child, I'm sure is it's worth every moment of sleepless hours and everything, all the headaches and everything that happens. Million percent. Um, after that first job, when we got the mother and child back, we pulled into a lineup in Marina in Cyprus, and uh, we basically stayed below deck for about five minutes, and then we got the call that we could just walk off. We walked straight off onto the tourist pier, walked down, got into my car, and I drove them to the hotel. That minute that I dropped them off at the hotel is the minute that I saw them reunite as a family. You got her, her parents there, the kids' grandparents there all extended family members. They was all taking pictures, hugging, crying, all that sort of stuff. And I just stood there and I watched that. And that, that in itself set, set my mind on all of this. It really did. It just, just made everything worthwhile in the end. Well, I mean, it's the dangers that we took. Yeah. Some things you just cannot put a value to. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, there's, that's, there's nothing you can do that you'll, that anybody will ever do. doesn't matter if it's a world series, if it's a, uh, I don't know what I, the World Cup or whatever over with you. There's nothing yeah, that compares. There's nothing that compares to to that feeling. I would think. Not a chance, seriously. Um, every time that I've taken on a case ever since that date, and even on that case itself, I kept thinking to myself, "What would I do if it's my own children?" And that's the only thing that kept me going. And uh, and seeing that reunification, the reunification of the family. Uh, I'm telling you, it, it's there's something that stays with you. There's something that changes inside you. It's it's really difficult to explain. I've never had a more satisfying moment than that in my entire life until that point. Uh, I know that we won't be able to cover every case that you've been on. Obviously, we just don't have enough time. Uh, that's why they yeah. can go read your book and look at your website. How many how many operations have you been on, or do you think that you've been on since all this started? And how many years yeah, ago did this start? This started at the end of 2012. First operation was completed. Um, so Lebanon was my first operation that I started, but my second operation that I completed. So um, completion of operation started in 2013. And since that date, we've had 17 successful operations. And within the last year, um, under the new registration of the company in the United Kingdom, because when I came to the UK last year, um, we've had five cases within the last 12 months. That's awesome, dude. That, I mean, that, we that, could that, do a lot more. Well, hopefully you will. Uh, yeah. T- tell them how, because uh, I, I do want to hear more about some of the other, you know, one or two cases and everything. But if people wanted to help, because I guess that's one thing that you're leaning towards now is you've became your own company to where yeah. you can do stuff the way that you see fit. How, how can people help you or volunteer or what, what, what would be the correct line of action for somebody to be part of Pegasus or to help with the, Pegasus? This- the, the entire end goal of what I'm trying to achieve right now is uh, a solid foundation to be able to pass through generation to generation. There's lots of reasons behind this. I can go into all of it. Um, to make it into a free service, we need to raise money from the general public. Um, so the best thing that I can do is explain to you how I ended up to the point where I developed the company um, and then from developing the company and where we're actually wanting to go with this over the future. So 
when I started and I completed that first case, I started working for this company. Um, it's uh, at the time was one of the largest companies out there. And I say large very loosely because size wise, it's not, but they were completing cases. When it comes to the fact, <coughs> excuse me, when it comes to the fact of working for that company, I saw a situation which I didn't agree with. It was a, it was a situation where the owner of the company was committing fraud and Basically, I was working on a parental abduction. Um, that, par- that child had reached an age where that child could decide where she wanted to live. So all, all court documents, doesn't matter what information they had or what legal rights they had, that was classed on, as non-invoid at that point because the child could now decide where she wanted to live and the father couldn't go and pick up that child. The owner of the company had a meeting with the father, took $30,000 um, uh, off that father and then, uh, and then didn't tell that, that father that his kid couldn't get, couldn't get recovered for a period of like two, three months or something like that. So when I when I witnessed that, that was the first time I witnessed fraud in the industry. So then uh, I left the company and I started freelancing. And as I was freelancing, I started to speak to over the, uh, some of these other companies, including one of these companies that were actually going against me, um, which was based out of Australia at the time. Um, what I noticed very quickly was, first of all, they all hated each other. None of them knew that I was talking to each other, so they would tell me everything about each other, which was pretty hilarious <laughs> to actually hear because I could I could learn all about their tactics and no one knew what was going on. But at the same time as that, I saw how much they were charging for cases and I also saw what they're doing with that money and how they're trying to live their life off that money. So these companies, they sell themselves as special forces companies. They sell themselves as operators all over the world and that they can do anything. It's pretty much what I sell myself as, apart from the fact that we're not a special forces company, although we do have some operators, but that's a different story. But they're actually taking money from the families, getting the families to remortgage their houses, get massive loans out, sell everything that they've got, charge them anywhere between 50 to 150 grand, telling them everything that they want to hear, and then they basically take that money, put it inside their own pocket, and they don't complete the case. Sometimes they attempt the case, and when they succeed, it's usually a very easy case, which is overpriced. But then when they attempt a hard case, a more difficult case, which they have this sense inside themselves that they believe they can do it, they fail. Um, and a typical example of that would be another case in Lebanon, which happened in 2016, early early 2016. And they all got arrested and everything was destroyed. This has been a constant thing. So I witnessed all of that. And when I was witnessing that, that's when I came up with the concept of Pegasus. With the concept being keep provide the cheapest service possible to the point or to the extent where we can provide a free service um, by raising funds from the general public and uh, provide a more professional service as well. Um, and we started to prove that point very quickly. I took the company live in 2017 um, when one of said companies kidnapped a child from Cyprus. And then one they of the escaped. other protection companies or recovery companies. One of these recovery companies that I've been speaking to, they kidnapped a child from Cyprus. As soon as I read the article on it, and this was a case that was the third attempt that it actually tried this, two attempts prior to that had been foiled. As soon as I read it, I knew exactly what company it was from my experience just speaking to these people. And I had to get in touch with the family and say, look, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. And no one believed me because no one knew who I was at the time. Eventually, I had a meeting with the family. They saw how serious I was. And we kept it as cheap as possible to the extent where there was about a thousand euros paid from the family, and I utilized about a thousand and a half euros of my own money as well. And I managed to go on the, on a chase in Turkey, and I chased this company down. And I chased them down to the point where I actually saw the owner of this company and one of the marinas 
trying to plan and organize and organize an extraction from one of these marinas inside of Turkey. And we can't constantly get the pressure on to the point where they ran out of funds. Now we didn't physically get the kid back, but with the pressure that we put on and the fear that we put into them, knowing that there's people coming after them. And this was the first case that we took on as a company that in itself changed the game massively. It really did. So then what, what would be the reasoning behind them taking the child? Like with them being a recovery company, if they're not supposed to, just to get money so, out of the parents. It's money. Yeah. So the father, parental abduction, okay, child was taken outside of a nursery. The way that they did it, they had two masked men. They grabbed the child off the mother outside the nursery, threw the mother to the ground, threw the child into a car. She then, they then t- took her to the border, swapped her into another car, which was a taxi to get across the border. Once they got across the border from the second car, they went to a third car, and that's when her father was there. And that's the first time that she's seen her father since she's a week old. She doesn't recognize her father. She doesn't know who her father is. This is a complete stranger. Okay? A lot of people, when I talk about this case, say the mother must have kidnapped the child originally um, when she was a week old and then went over to Cyprus. That's not the case. That's nothing to do with any of the details of the case, and she never did anything like that in the first place. Okay. There were major complications before that. So now, now I think I've got it. I just want to make sure before, before we continue. Some of these cases are where it's kind of he said, she said. It's not where the the father has rights to the child. He's just telling a recovery company that he has rights to the child. So they'll take it away from the mother, not to where the the mother's in the wrong. She just happens to have custody of the child, right? Like it's kind of, it's kind of wishy-washy, I guess. Yeah. So you, you get different cases. This is, this is going down the parental abduction route and I'll go through okay. how many different types of cases there are. So on the parental abduction route, there's ways and there's ways and means of dealing with a parental abduction. Um, a lot of parental abduction we want to take on. And the reason being is because they don't tell the full story and the majority of the time they're trying to, it's, it's all about psychological elements. It's about the narcissism that people play onto okay. each other. It's about the power that they want to play over each other. In, the, in this case with the Cyprus case, the father didn't know the child. The father went to this company and says, my child was kidnapped when, I was, when, when she was a week old. I want my child back. They've said, give me this much money. And they said, right, no problem. That's not how you deal with a parental abduction in any way whatsoever. You have to weigh up so many elements, and we've done a full-blown investigation into the, both parents, extended families, all social media accounts, all court accounts, all court records. And we even go into the psychological elements and, uh, and obviously the criminal record side of things as well to see if there's any charges against. Now, that's just the beginning before you even decide to take on a case. Yeah. Now, if you've got it all weighed up in your odds and you've got the hate convention order and you've also got arrest warrants out for kidnapping, um, under Interpol with a red notice and yellow notice and then the yellow notice for the child actually being missing, then you might have a case. But you will never, ever, and you should never, ever actually pick up a child on a parent's abduction. You can locate your child. You can actually build up a pattern of life to see how that child is living and what sort of conditions that child is living under. But when it comes to actually picking up that child, it should only be the parents, and usually it should be the authorities executing the order under the Hague condition with that parent. And then we would provide a close protection service to make sure that parent and that child was safe at all costs. That's as far as you go with a parental abduction. On the majority of occasions, unless obviously the child has been taken to a war zone or a hostile area around the world. And that's where things change a little bit. Okay. Um, so I guess, because uh, I have to do this from, like the, uh, <clears throat> from the opinion of the listener. That's what I was getting at is I guess you just never know. You you never know who's telling the truth in, a, in an abduction as far as when it's a parent abduction case. Like you have to, you have to vet through it. I guess what you vet through it 
The other companies don't. They just take the money and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get your kid. But if it was legal recourse, like you just said, it's where the law would handle it after you looked into it. Yeah, exactly. That, that, okay. that's, that's exactly it. I okay. mean, they're just taking on a case because they've got the money and then therefore they're committing kidnapping. Okay. And that, that's where it gets really, really difficult with parents' abductions. But we've also got to take into account that parents' abductions are not safe in any way whatsoever. We haven't. It, there are times where parents' abductions, there is a parent that will kidnap a child because they're running away from domestic abuse. Okay. This, this happens quite a lot. Um, I had a, a, a potential client I said that very loosely, get in touch with me recently and tell me that I have to take on his case of his child being kidnapped just to repent for my sins in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I could see straight away on the psychological element what is going on with that person and what could have possibly happened to lead that parent to, to, to actually leave. So because uh, there's manipulation involved straight away. So you, you analyze every single detail of it before you even, even think about taking on a case like that. Plus, because we're not money orientated, we can analyze those cases, we can look at those cases, and we can take on those cases because we're not going into the financial um, profiteering side of things. And that's why we do what we do. Uh, okay. Now, you said a while ago that there's several different kinds of abduction cases, parents being yeah. one of them. What are some of the other ones? So parents' abduction is quite a common case, and it's quite common for these companies that I talk about who are ripping people off. Outside of that, things that we work on, there's a thing called county lines. I'm not sure if you've heard about it in the States, but county lines is basically when um, large drug gangs um, from different areas, they groom kids from the ages of 11 through to the ages of 16, 17 years old, promising them the world and that they could become a famous rapper or a famous drug dealer or big-time money, um, uh, making a lot of money in the future. Uh, they give them gifts. They make them to, to think that the lifestyle that they're choosing is good. And they basically convince them to smuggle drugs between one county to another county. They then put them into crack dens, basically, and then get them to sell those drugs, usually for a 48-hour period, sometimes a seven-day period. Um, and this this leads to, obviously, bigger things as they go along. Then they end up carrying knives and stuff like this. So we deal with kids that have been taken into that. We also deal with, um, we've had a case recently where it was the uh, quickest case that we ever solved. It was within a two-hour period. A girl was groomed online to run away and be with her groomer. Um, that was obviously for his own personal sexual gratification. Um, she ran away from home. Father managed to get in touch. And the only reason he managed to get in touch is because of our, our presence on TikTok, which had spread the word quite well, so to the point where he called us. Um, and then within a two-hour period, we built up a profile on the kidnapper. Uh, we had all of his social media accounts. We had his pattern on how he was doing it, who he was targeting, where he was doing this. Um, we had an address um, of where the girl had ran to. And we had uh, <coughs> we had uh, guys on the ground on route to that location within the first 10 minutes of it happening. And we got to the address location uh, to, within a two-hour period to go through the door uh, before the police had even started asking questions. Then there's runaways on top of that. Um, we had a child run away from Switzerland. Um, lots of complications that were involved in that um, and a lot of strange questions that were risen out of it and which are questions that still stand today. Um, but then you've got your rapists, you've got your murderers, you've got your paedophiles, then you've got your organised crime, um, your sex trafficking, your organ donor trafficking. Um, and, and, and the list just goes on for the reasons of why people kidnap. When you said there's a lot of strange questions that arose from that situation uh, that are still today, can you can you kind of give me a little insight yeah. into that? The case was a really strange case. It was a high net worth individual as a client. Um, the child had run away from home. 
there was a large security company that was looking for the child for about two weeks. Um, we got called in on the scene by a family friend who's a veteran, um, and they were looking for a specific type of uh, person to actually work on a case rather than a corporate company. Um, so we reached out. We started talking. Within a three-hour period, we was on the case. Um, uh, and then we ended up in Switzerland within about five hours, uh, organizing everything. So the way that it worked out was that the kid had run away, and there was lots of possible reasons behind it. Um, there was a possibility that he was possibly being groomed. Um, we don't know what for. I still, to this day, believe that the mother was the target. Um, the Eastern Europeans were in. He was he was dealing with a lot of Russians, going to a lot of Russian locations. His girlfriend was Russian. Um, but then it, we got into a position where we developed communications between the mother and, and the child. And the child would then was then trying to organize the mother to end up in Monaco. Um, so we set up a location, we set up a time and date when this would all happen. Uh, luckily for us, it all went through about 24 hours prior um, to the actual mother getting in there because the mother was never intentionally going to go there anyway. But we wanted to build up surveillance on him to see where he would go, who he would work with and things like this. Now, once we've got a location, obviously there's a lot of things that do go wrong. Um, I wouldn't say it went wrong as such, but the mother was that anxious to get the child back. Um, the police were in involved. She managed to call the police. The police actually lifted him. <clears throat> when they lifted him, obviously, we were still doing surveillance on him, so we had him all the way down to the police station. He's in the police station, gets questioned. We go into the police station to pick him up. And as we're there, we go through the whole process of actually getting him released from prison. Oh, not prison, but released from being detained. So we can actually escort him back to Switzerland. As we're about to leave that police station, a BMW pulled up. And two blokes jumped out of that vehicle. They came straight towards the door as we we're about to leave. We we're staging vehicles and everything at the time. And they literally blocked the road, doors open on the vehicle and everything, acting like there's an emergency going on. But it's, something was really badly off of it. My, my guys on the outside and my guys on the inside were behind secure doors. So we got control of the kid straight away, thinking that they're coming for the kid. As this happened, the police are there trying to talk them out of it and saying, listen, what, what is it you want? They're coming up with some bullshit excuses and things like this. The police managed to push him away from the door and get him back to the car. And luckily for where we was, the police station had a massive loop around it where the car would have to drive back to go around. So as soon as that vehicle pulled off, we pulled on our vehicles to go through the escort to get him out. Now, this is where it got confusing because we're believing at this point the kid is being used. And I'm believing at this point that he's being used to target his mother and possibly target her money, which is why he wanted they wanted him to, to bring the mother into Monaco itself. But then the kid bought time by trying to delay and go, for the, to go to the toilet. And then he tried to delay before he got into the car to have a cigarette, which raised a lot of questions as to, is the child orchestrating this? How old is the kid? 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Sounds like so now, you've, now, now we're starting to think that he's trying to orchestrate something to actually profit from his mother using the Russians as an excuse. Or has he been groomed to do this as a good idea? And there's so many questions that arose from it. It was unbelievable. But we managed to get into the car. We escorted him to the airport. And we got a private jet over to Switzerland. And then from there, because we didn't know what was going on, we was worried about the family's safety. And we had protection on the family throughout all of this in different locations around Europe um, and the UK. So uh, once we got back there, we was in the middle of the mountains. There's no police around there. There's nothing. There's no support whatsoever. I've got my operators on the ground. We're not armed, and we never go armed unless we're in a hostile environment. 
So we started to think, right, this is not a secure area to be in itself. So the moment we decided to fly us over to England and we came to their properties in England. From that point, we set up security onto their house. Um, and then obviously from there, we ended up doing surveillance on the family and on the child as the child eventually started to go out and went down to London. Um, what we found was that he was going to Russian locations in London and things like this, and it still opened a lot of questions. But the unfortunate side of it was the mother herself decided to call off security, call off surveillance because of finances, and she was hitting a yearly budget on the money that she was actually allowed through the way that she she works her finances. So we got pulled, pulled off, and that left so many questions open for us. It was unbelievable. It but it was like definitely, it. definitely an interesting case of that, I don't now, now, one of the things that in the past year or so that has just became such a huge deal over here, I don't know if you've seen any of the, the documentaries um, or any of the weird Q9 stuff or anything that goes on over here with the children that are being trafficked for these big name politicians, uh, for other things, There's even this thing called Androchrome or whatever it is. Androchrome, yeah. Have you seen firsthand any of those things that would give any validation to any of those rumors or conspiracy theories? Firsthand, no. Uh, the only thing I can say about that is that the larger that we get and the more cases that we start to take on, we're going to end up in a situation where the reasons behind those children going missing in the first place are becoming a lot darker than what they actually are right now. The more cases that we take on, the more it's going to lead us to children that the people are not even looking for. Wherever there's a rumor, and this is our military experience, anyone that's been in the military knows that rumors spread like wildfire. But wherever there's a rumor, there's always an element of truth to that rumor. This is how I look at conspiracy theories. As well. I mean, there's some of them that are far out there, but I do believe a lot of them. And I be- I'm open. I wouldn't say believe, but I'm open-minded to thinking about them. And there is always elements of truth. When it comes to satanic rituals and things like this, this is 100% definitely becoming more and more out in the open. I wouldn't say becoming more it, it's becoming more apparent rather than the fact that it's happening more but now people are starting to realize that this stuff does happen we've already proven that people in the one percenters there's people in high profile uh, industries high profile jobs they're getting arrested left right and center or they're being something's happening to them left right and center and there's a lot of people that are actually being put into jail for reasons to do with children as well and this is also dating back to the uk with the stuff that happened in the eighties and the people that have been recently done for pedophilia and it's took them like 20 to 30 years, 40 years to actually do this. And then there's the stuff that's happening over in the States and we all know about Hollywood and things like this. It's, it's there. And the truth is out there right in front of us. And the more that people are actually listening to what's happening on mainstream media, the more lies are being told that they're starting to believe is the truth, but the actual truth of what's happening is right in front of our eyes. It's just a case of us opening towards it. And once we do, we're going to see a lot more of it, 100%. It's there. Well, I think that the way the world's going now, where you're starting to see more evil that you would have never saw 40, 50 years ago, that some of these things are coming more believable. And I think that's yeah. why, because of all the evil in this world, that with the adrenochrome or whatever, with the satanic rituals, it's maybe to where some of it's far-fetched, but it's more believable now than ever because of all the, the negativity and just pure out disgusting shit in this world. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Don't doubt that in any way whatsoever. Uh, people, it, the funny thing is as well, is that <clears throat> sounds unrelated, but it's not when it comes to COVID 
people have started to realise what's happening with the situation of COVID in itself and how it's changing the world or should, shouldn't be changing the world, but is changing the world. So people are starting to question a lot more about what's happening around them. Evil is a massive thing, and you can see it every single place that you look if you just open your eyes. I live in a nice town, and you wouldn't even think that this town could have anything wrong inside it if you're just walking down the streets. But if you scratch slightly underneath that surface, you're going to see so much more. And I did that in my hometown when it comes to counter lines, and now I see it everywhere around me. And that's all it takes is for you to open your eyes at one time. Yeah, uh, I know this is going to be off topic, but you you brought it up, so I'm going to ask. Um, yeah. As far as COVID over where you're at compared to where I'm at, what has changed in your community or in your uh, your state or whatever it would be to where a year and a half ago or two years ago it wouldn't have been that way? What have they tried? Because there's all kind of weird shit here now because of COVID. Where I am is quite, and we're quite lucky. Um, the UK people have stood up to a lot of things. Um, and when you go out, you would say that you're living a normal life. There's a lot of rules and regulations in the backgrounds that you never see anymore. We don't have to wear masks in places unless you go to a hospital and stuff like this. But overall, it's back to normal. The things that are happening in the background with them continuously pushing and pushing and pushing with bribes, which is grooming, to get the vaccine and things like this, um, and then pushing it onto the schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that's where problems, they lie, but they're being fought against. Um, you've, got, you've got things like the GBA, the Global Veterans Alliance, um, they're doing protests about that sort of stuff. They've got lawyers involved in all this, and people are sending letters to the schools and all that. So it's fight. they are fighting it legally because what's not being told to you is that you don't have to do what they're telling you to do. They're advising it, but yet it seems like they're giving you no choice, but you do have a choice. Now, what's happening is that those choices are so far-fetched, the legal system's actually fighting against it under common law, and it's working yeah, they're uh, over here. They're mandating it now. There's people that are yeah. quitting their jobs left and right because they refuse to get the vaccine. I personally have nothing against the vaccine. I'm not getting it just because I uh, am a firm believer in it got rushed. You don't know what that vaccine is going to do to you five years from now. That's the same as me. That, that's the only thing that I have against it. If it works, hell yeah. I mean, we've yeah. took vaccines our whole life, but you don't know what it's going to do to you. You don't know what side effects it's going to have in the long run. I'm 100% about waiting. Everything that you've seen and every, every vaccine that you've had throughout your life has been tested through time. Yeah. Um, your children's vaccines are tested through time. I'm not, I'm not about to jump into something immediately as soon as someone says you have to do this when I know that I've got time on my side. And I will always wait to the last minute without a dump. Yeah. Um, have you had, uh, to get back to the, the children thing while we're here in the first yeah. place, um, have you just had any experiences that were just so disheartening and made you just rethink this whole thing? Uh, yeah, not so much with the child recovery side as an operational side of things. It's more about the people in general side. <clears throat> I get a lot of cases come through to me. Um, one of the most disheartening things for me is that I know that my capabilities are a lot more than what they are right now. And the only thing that stops us is finances. The whole concept of what we're trying to create is that if we can get 15,000 people to donate two pounds, that's about like $3.50 or something like that. Um, I spend more than that on a cup of coffee most days. Most people spend that more on a cup of coffee on most days. If we can get that, 15,000 people to donate two pounds, that's one international case. I want to get to the point where I can take on four to six cases a month. So when I see that we're getting a big outreach, but we're not getting those funds to come in, that's probably one of the most disheartening things because I'm constantly bombarded with 
missing person requests. We've got Cleo Smith that's missing over in Australia. We've got the Moti brothers over in, in South Africa. I've had hundreds of emails from South Africa, hundreds of emails from Australia asking me to come and help. We can't go because we don't have the funds to be able to do that. That's probably the most disheartening thing and probably the, the point where I always get to the, where I'm just like, are we going to be able to continue? Should we just close shop and actually let people deal with their own problems? I can't do it. I can't do it in myself. I don't think you should have to do it in yourself uh, or as far as like shutting down. I think what you're going to run up against um, is you're going to run up against cynical people that just want a lot. They're, they're scared of the validation of the organization. That, that That's probably what it is. There's nobody that I think could sit here and listen and talk to you and not think that you're genuine and that you're doing what you're supposed to. But unfortunately, because of those other companies that have yeah. screwed people over, it's always going to be the little guy that, ends up getting the the bad part of that. Like you, you, yeah, you sure. get screwed over because of them. And, and, that, and that's probably not fair. I think the more that you share on social media, the more that you go on podcasts, the more you go on talk shows, um, it gives you more validation and people get to see who you are and why you're doing what you're doing and not just doing it for a paycheck. Yeah. One of the, one of the biggest things that I've always been proud of is the fact of how transparent I am and how, how transparent we are as a company. I've got no problem admitting any of my mistakes that I've made. Um, and I've made a few, primarily in trusting the wrong people. Um, but I've got no problem on t- telling people every single detail about me. I've got no worries in that whatsoever. Since we started to go through TikTok and since we went viral on TikTok, a lot of people paid attention to us. Primarily my opposition. And one company in particular would be the company that I previously spoke about who was in a le- on a job in Lebanon and failed that job in Lebanon in, the- in early 2016. Now, they've came on the attack and they use multiple accounts to try to discredit us. And the prime way that they try to discredit us is that on their website, they have slander and defamation written about us. But they've got it written about everybody, so I'm not overly concerned about what they have to say because it's written like a 12-year-old anyway. That's the only time that you're actually going to find anything negative about me as an individual or about my company because it's written by them and they're, what would you call it, modem de operadum or whatever it is. I have no um, idea. <laughs> yeah, but but their methods are to slander everyone to make it out that they're the best, but they're the ones that actually you look up and you can find every single thing bad about them. So I'm not overly concerned about them anymore, but we do get people out there that they don't know us, so their immediate assumption is that this has to be a scam because you're trying to get money from the general public. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I continuously have to remind myself is that we've only been out to the public for the last 12 months, um, not even last 12 months, really. It's realistically been since February that we've been out to the public. We've only been working on operating from the UK for the last 12 months. So it's definitely a new thing that people are being introduced to. And it's a new thing that is the right thing to do for the rest of the world. So it, it's going to grow in that aspect. And, and by far, I've got more supporters than what I do haters, without a doubt. And there's a very few, but... Those very few, you've got to be careful they don't turn into a cancer to try to destroy everything. Uh, but we do find that a lot of it is lack of understanding than anything. I think that's why you, like, you being transparent about everything. I think that's just the way that um, – the only way that gives you validation. I mean, because I, I don't know how many companies there is like you or is like yours, but uh, I imagine some of them, they don't admit their faults. I imagine some of them just, you know, they go on about by the wayside and – to do whatever they got to do just to get a check. And you just don't seem like that type of guy. 
No, I'm definitely not. I mean, I've utilized my own money to the point where I actually couldn't pay my own rent because I wanted to do a case and get that case completed. Those people that we talk about, I mean, there's not many good companies out there. There are a few, but there's more bad companies that are popping up left, right and center than anything. Um, it, it's just ridiculous in the way that they actually operate and the way that they do things. A bit. Uh, how does law enforcement feel about what you do? In itself, so for the UK itself, we've never spoken to them as an organization. Individual police officers, different fields within the police, they're all speaking to us constantly. Um, they admire what we do. They want to get out and they, they, they want to do what we do and they want to join us. And don't get me wrong, they've got a lot of skills that us being ex-military, we don't have. So it's, it's handy to have these people on board. <clears throat> um, again, when it comes to international organizations, so the Interpol, there's in- individuals that we do speak to that support us 100%. Um, but as an organization, we're unsure of. We're not at the point where the organization would be even thinking about us, I believe. I think when we start to change our statistics and we start to change them on a bigger scale, then it's going to be a lot better. Um, that's when they'll pay attention to us. That's when policies and government will have to change. And that's when the policies and the authorities will have to change. But the biggest problem that the police and any type of authorities, primarily, I'm going to talk about UK police now. Um, they end up in a situation where they're, they're full of bureaucracy. They're, they're, they've got so much red tape ties them down. They've got time limits for certain things that they have to work on. And then they've got jurisdictions that they're allowed to work in. And then cases, more often than not, will get passed down, passed down, and passed down through jurisdictions. And then the international cases, it's exactly the same thing, which becomes a chain of phone calls. And as they're sitting there waiting for a chain of phone calls, if they get nothing through, that's when they put an appeal out to the public. And then they ask, call this number if you've got any information. And then they'll possibly put a reward out. That's, that's where their problems lie. Um, and that's why individual police will come to us and speak to us, because they want to do the job that they're actually paid to do. So as an organization, I still couldn't say. But the individuals, they're, they're definitely, definitely 100% supportive. Have you had any negative? Uh, I, I would guess you having to go, would you not have in jurisdiction? And you being able to go from country to country, have you ever been detained or had any bad run-ins with law enforcement in other countries? Um, the only time I got detained was on purpose. <laughs> I was working on a case out in Ukraine. Um, I couldn't figure out what border assets they had at the time. Now, we're a lot more experienced down in the Ukraine now. Um, we could complete the case very quickly. But at the time, it was my first time over there operationally. I've been there plenty of times before as a civilian, as a tourist. But operationally, I couldn't figure out what assets they had. Did they have motion sensors? Did they have dogs? Did they have armed people in there on the border, um, et cetera, et cetera? So I set up a cover story for two weeks. Um, and this cover story consisted of the fact that everything about my life was or my life for my cover story was put into play in real life with people involved in that um and we built it up for for a good two weeks before i actually went and i chose a spot on a border which was quite far away from where i set up my cover story and then obviously when i get to the border i literally stood on the border between poland and the ukraine now as i'm standing on that border i start walking along the fence line and i must have been walking along that fence line so now i know i can cross that border quite easily if i wanted to and it's literally one bar piece of barbed wire, a single track road, and then another piece of barbed wire with candy canes both sides for each country. <clears throat> I walked across that border for about five minutes until an armed guard came out of the woods, soldier, uh, running towards me with an AK. Now, me, part of my cover story was that I'm just a gobby Brit. I'm just a, a war tourist, just split up with his wife. And uh, I chose a spot specifically on Google, which had an old USSR crossing point. The cover story in itself was pathetic, 
for me being there because this crossing point was literally like a sty that you would use to cross over a fence. That that's that's how weak this picture was. You wouldn't be able to see it, no, no matter what. So this guard comes up as I pull out my passport. He's got his weapon pointing at me, and I'm just there gobbing off, saying, "Oh, right, calm down. <laughs> I'm just a tourist." Blah blah blah. He gets support coming down in the vehicle. They put me in the vehicle. They take me to a camp. They interrogated me for one hour. They checked out my cover story. And then they held me there for another four hours. This is all part of the research that we did. We knew that they could detain us for five hours. So then I've got roam of the camp to actually go to the smoking area. So I go down the smoking area. I'm waiting for the intelligence to come down. Eventually, the intelligence didn't come down to brief me anyway. And then obviously pushed me away from the border. So I'm standing in the smoking area of a, young, a bunch of young soldiers now, showing them pictures of Iraq, Afghanistan, places that I've been, telling them war stories and stuff like this. I've got one guy that I can translate into English and that's it. And they're obviously trying to buy my phone and they're just messing around with me because squaddies are squaddies. Soldiers are soldiers. doesn't matter where you're from. You're going to get on with another country's soldiers quite easily. And then I was able to develop what type of assets that they had and what places that they could cross. All of that played a massive part in that entire operation. It really did. And that's the only time that I've been detained. But outside of that, I've also had, in Turkey, police putting out covert surveillance teams for me, um, escorting me around and introducing me to different people, helping me to canvas certain areas, especially when I was chasing that company down. So it works on both sides, you see. What, uh, <clears throat> as far as when you were doing that research at the at the border, what, what was that for? What was the purpose of you doing that? There was a, the, the case that I was working um, when it came to um, uh, the case where I ended up quitting the company. So this is a case where the child had reached the age where she could choose where she wanted to live. Okay. So we was planning, I was planning that entire operation and how to get out of that, uh, that, uh, that situation with the father. Um, that's when I went back. After all of that operation, it was about a six-month operation of them. After that, that's when I went back and I said, this is what's happened, this is what's happening, and this why can't it be done. That's when he committed fraud, so that's what it was about. Now, when I'm just trying to like when they're helping you, like especially like we was talking about the Turkish police and everything, are they helping you and they are like kind of supporting you because they don't have the means to do or the time to do what you're trying to do? Do they know that it is a big deal? Do they know that there's a problem in that area in their countries and they're hoping for for civilians like you uh, for you to solve that problem or help with that issue? No, um, they're primarily helping because they've got a foreigner on their, on their, in their areas and that foreigner is, is kicking up dust. And that's probably, probably the primary way, reasons why they actually help us. When it comes to majority of cases, the authorities are not interested in any way whatsoever. And there's, every time that we do an operation, we have to analyze, are they going to hinder us or are they actually going to help us? And we have to weigh up the odds of what they could do to help us. Would it be beneficial? Or if it's a hindrance, then obviously we have to push them away and not utilize them. Why do you think that they try to hinder you? You would figure with a child missing in whatever capacity that they would want to be on board to help. You would think so, but it all depends on the situation itself. One thing that I found is that if we can produce a, a mass amount of evidence to the point where they're actually going we have to do something about this. They look at it and they say, we have to do something about this now. And if you've got an authoritative figure going in there and being Brit definitely helps, going in there and saying, right, bang, this is what's happening at this location. This is what we need. This is what we need. This is what we need. Move now and command the room. Then they're going to do something. Outside of that, if you go in and say, all right, there's a possibility we've got a kid that's in your area and this is the person that we're looking for. Now, if we haven't got an Interpol warrant, that even goes less of an impact. If we've got a red notice from Interpol, 
or yellow note is from Interpol, that might have a bigger impact. But it can won't you be that massive. can you explain that to the all of us over here that don't understand <laughs> the red and the yellow? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, in Interpol, you get uh, different types of notices. You get a red notice and amber note or yellow notice, and you get a blue notice. Blue notice is nothing to do with actually missing children or, or wanted people. That's more primarily for um, investigations to go out with Interpol from a different country. A red notice is basically this person is wanted for this, and it puts up a list of all of their charges, their pictures, their locations of where they've gone from and want to, um, and everything that's about it. Then you've got your amber notice or your, your yellow notice, and that's the missing child. This child was taken from this place at this time, blah, 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 blah. This child is missing pictures, all details of it. Now, if you can present them, and if you've got Interpol on site, then utilize an Interpol to translate that into their country, then they'll be able to actually go in. So if we can provide the location, say, this is what's happened here. This is the child that we found. She's in this location. We need our action or we need support right now to escort this child back to her country. Then we have to analyze if they're going to do that. Now, there's a chance that they won't, and it's a high chance that they won't, majority of the time. But if they do, then obviously that just makes our job a lot easier. What is, I guess, your goals coming up, like as far as the next two or three years? What do you see Pegasus doing? Within the next 12 months, I want to get to the point where we can take on four to six cases every single month. The only way that we're able to do that is to raise funds from the general public. With the whole concept of being if 15,000 people donated two pounds, that's one international case straight off the bat. Um, we're transparent with all the costs and everything like that with the cases because we create reports and everything that we've spent on those on those cases goes into those reports as well, as well as timelines of the things that we've done. So for us to get to four cases, we need to raise, um, what is it now, uh, £120,000 a month. So all we need is 60,000 people to actually donate £2. Now, in comparison to the size of the population, in comparison to the size of our followers um, on TikTok and in comparison to the size of the populations for individual countries like the US and the UK, that's only a very small scale thing that we're asking for. The reason that we say £2 is primarily because there's no financial pressure on the donator. Outside of that, there's no financial pressures on the families and the families can trust that they've got professional individuals going out there and physically looking for their children instead of waiting for a phone call. And then we've got the, the we've got no pressures on us when it comes to finances to be able to put guys out and operate actually professional as a professional unit instead of having to cut costs here and cut costs there to try to get things done. Um, that's that's the entire concept of what we're trying to achieve within the next three to four years, five year plan. Um, become one of the largest providers for child recovery services um, and locating children around the world. How many people do you have hitting you up right now or waiting on you to take on their case or to go look for their child? Every day I get tagged in 10 to 20 different posts of missing children from all over the world. Um, for the case of Cleo Smith, I've had over 100, 150 emails. For South Africa, the Moti Brothers, <coughs> easily over 100 emails. Um, cases that we've got backed up at the moment that we can't fund. We've currently got eight cases. No, nine cases now because one came in the other day. So that's nine cases that we've got waiting to actually go ahead. Um, and they're cases that we've accepted. Majority of cases right now we have to turn down due to the fact we don't have finances. But within a month, if we was to have the finances, I can guarantee within a month of being able to accept cases, we're going to have hundreds of cases, I'm telling you. So if someone because wanted, they are coming in, we just can't do it. Well, that, that's what I was getting to. If someone wanted yeah. to donate because you have all these, and it and, yeah. and you're just and you're just one company too, which is which is wonderful because uh, the, how, how many right now do you think there's missing children just in your area? 
like in your in your I guess community, not in your community. I don't know how you if you say state where you're from. I would say counties. Counties, yeah. In your your general area, how many missing children do you think is in that area? Um, Honestly, I couldn't tell you. Statistically, it's very difficult to get hold of solid statistics. The only thing I can tell you about statistics in itself is that in the UK alone, um, anywhere between 137 to 240,000 children are reported missing every single year. Out of that, there's a high percentage that I never found. If someone that's, wanted, that's for the UK alone because yeah, we're that, so small. That's what I was trying to get to is probably just saying the yeah. UK, but I didn't know how it was divided up. I don't know a lot about over there. I'm all uh, I barely know my American stuff. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah, hard, yeah. it's hard for me to know UK stuff. Um, if someone wanted to donate and they wanted to help your cause, how would they go about doing that? Um, yeah, so we, we've got multiple ways of donating. Um, we've got uh, a just giving page, which is a crowdfunding page like GoFundMe. And the reason we went on just giving is because the minimum donation is two pounds. You can literally type in and custom how much you actually want to donate. Um, uh, so we, we've got the link on that on our website. Our website is pegasus-ops.com and the donate button takes you to that just given page. We've also got merchandise for sale. That merchandise, all proceeds from that merchandise, once obviously the merchandise is paid for anything above that, that goes into donations. We've got the book for sale, which is Angel in the Shadows. That's available on the website, which takes you to steelcitypress.co.com. Sorry, steelcitypress.co.uk for uh, international sales, um, and then uh, and then we've got Patreon as well. And on Patreon, it's a new thing for us, but I'm starting to develop it to the point where we can start podcasts, where we can start YouTube videos. And Patreon itself, we give live feed, and we'll also give exclusive footage of cases as and when we do those cases to make sure that people are getting what's worth their money. And all of that goes towards it as well. So there's multiple ways that we're raising donations. Well, I know uh, us here at Raising Grace Studios, we're going to make a donation. So I ask every one of the listeners to this, uh, there's going to be a lot of them. So if y'all got time, if you got the extra, I don't know what two pounds translates into into uh, to dollars, but I think it's, what's it's it about $3.50, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, I, knew, I knew it was less than $5. I just couldn't remember yeah. what it was. Um, but y'all take two seconds. Go, go make a donation. He's not asking for the world, but what he is asking for is to help uh, him save the world in a way. I mean, your 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 few bucks can help save a kid's life. Um, yeah, 100%. I think I think all of us can spare three dollars and fifty cent a month. You know, um, but Mr. Jordan, it was a it was an absolute pleasure. Um, I want to help you in any way that we can. Whenever you get your podcast or whatever going, we will promote it. Do whatever. Uh, we'll have you on every once in a while to talk about maybe some cases that you've got going. If there's one that you know you're struggling with to to get funds for just let me know if we can talk a little bit about that case at that time then uh yeah, maybe we, maybe we can uh help get some money rolling for you because i i love what you did i wish i had the uh the military experience and everything the operations experience that you have to go help kids it's a it's a huge thing here in the united states and it's a huge thing all over the world and for people like you, you you're you're a fucking warrior my guy and uh no, thanks man you know you just the world needs more people like you and i hope that uh I hope Pegasus is a success because if it is, that means that there's children coming back home to their mom and dads safely. And that's, that's, that's huge. Um, but Mr. Jordan, if you can drop your social media links one more time, that way they can go look you up and find you the name of the website. One more again, well, we'll get out of here. Yeah, for sure. Um, all social media, it's we're, like, we're called Pegasus ops. So we got us on Instagram and you've got us on Facebook and TikTok. Um, outside of that, we've got the website, which is pegasus-ops.com. 
and you've got all links for everything on there, including previous podcasts, and we'll be putting up this link for this podcast as well, um, and all social media platforms and contact details are at the bottom of the page as well. Thank you. Well, Mr. Jordan, you have a good day, and thank each and every one of y'all for listening to Politics, Religion, and Whiskey, the Josh Terry Podcast. Save our children. Donate to this man today. <laughs>